Welcome to NVC Life. I'm Rochelle Lamb, veteran NVC trainer and relationship coach, helping listeners navigate interpersonal conflict and ground more deeply into relational living. Greetings, fellow humans. Today's episode marks the completion of one year of podcasting for me. This is my 52nd episode. Woohoo! I've actually really surprised myself in how disciplined I've been about it. It's not been anywhere near as easy as I had imagined. Go figure. It can't be that hard, can it? To release 10 to 20 minute episodes every week. I had absolutely no idea how hard it would actually be. You know, while it takes listeners under 20 minutes to listen to one of my episodes, the amount of time it takes on my side is far greater. I'm not even going to say how long it takes me to put an episode together because I'm embarrassed by it. I'm imagining the day when it won't take me more than an hour to create and publish an episode. Ha! It's so unlikely. Anyway, I'm really pleased about having published 52 episodes, and I'd like to thank you if you've been listening to me from week to week as I attempt to speak something to listeners that will somehow enrich their lives and deepen their wondering on what it means to be human in these especially troubled times. I still don't know if I'm going to commit to a weekly episode for the next 52 weeks, I'm going to think about it, and I may at some point switch to once every two weeks. We'll see. I'll certainly keep you posted. And as I consider how often I publish, I need to think about the why behind my podcast. Why am I doing this? I much prefer to be in dialogue with others rather than to be speaking into the big, dark void without knowing who's there. It's also true, though, that there's a lot that goes on in my head, a lot pertaining to the complicated world we live in and the important things I've learned along the way. And since Marshall Rosenberg and his book Nonviolent Communication have played such a significant role in my life, I'm drawn to wonder about how NVC teachings apply to Western understandings about life and how they help or even possibly hinder our evolution as humans. So today... Episode 52, what to talk about. In last week's episode, Our Modern Obsession with Comfort, I read from Jean Leadloff's book, The Continuum Concept. The truth is, there was more I wanted to read from the book, but I decided to reserve it for another episode. And I've made a unilateral decision that it will be today. Last week was the story of portaging a heavy, unwieldy dugout canoe with a group of men. Today, we'll go fetch water with a group of Yaquana women. I'll jump right in. For three weeks, during which my partner said that they had been unavoidably detained by a large band of pygmies, I lived alone with the Yaquana. In that short time, I unlearned more of the assumptions upon which I was reared than I had on the entire first expedition. And I began to see the value of the unlearning process several more contributions to an alternative point of view on the subject of work, too, penetrated past the intervening layers of my prejudice. One was the apparent absence of the word for work in the Aquana vocabulary. 
they had the work Tarabajo to use about dealings with non-Indians, who, apart from us, were known to them almost entirely by hearsay. This was a slight mispronunciation of the Spanish Trabajo and referred quite accurately to what the conquistadors and their successors meant by it. It struck me that it was the only Spanish derivative among all the words I learned from them. There appeared to be no Yaquana concept of work similar to ours. There were words for each activity that might have been included, but no generic term. If they did not distinguish work from other ways of spending time, it was little wonder that they behaved so irrationally as I then judged about fetching water. The women left their fireside several times a day, carrying two or three small gourds at a time, walked part of the way down the mountain, picked their way down a precipitous slope that was extremely slippery when wet, filled the gourds in a streamlet, and climbed back to the village above. The whole operation took about 20 minutes. Many of them carried babies as well as gourds. When I went down for the first time, I was struck by the inconvenience of walking so far for a commodity so constantly needed. It was inconceivable that they should not choose a village site where water was more accessible. The last part of the walk at the stream bank made me tense with anxiety at the necessity for taking care at every step to avoid falling. To be sure, the Yaquana have a superior sense of balance and, like the North American Indian, no vertigo. But the fact was that neither they nor I ever fell, and I alone resented having to pay attention to my steps. Their steps were equally cautious, but they did not frown as I did at the hardship of taking care. They went on gossiping and joking softly, on the flat or on the slope, for they usually went in groups of two, three, or more, and, as always, a party mood prevailed. Once a day, each woman put her gourds and clothing, and here she describes the clothing, a small apron-like cash sex, and ankle beads, knee beads, wrist beads, upper arm beads, and ear beads. And so, once a day, each woman put her gourds and clothing on the bank and bathed herself and her baby. However many women and children participated, the bath had a Roman quality of luxuriousness. Every move bespoke sensual enjoyment, and the babies were handled like objects so marvelous that their owners felt constrained to put a mock-modest face on their pleasure and pride. Walking down the mountain was done in the same accustomed to the best, almost smug style, and their last perilous steps into the stream would have done credit to a Miss World coming forward to claim her crown. This was true of all the Yaquana women and girls I saw, though their distinct personalities rendered the manifestations of their coziness quite various. Upon reflection, I was hard put to think of a better way to use the water-fetching time, at least from the point of view of well-being. If progress, on the other hand, were the criterion, or its handmaidens, speed, efficiency, and novelty, the water walks were positively moronic. But my experience of the ingenuity of the people in question was such that I had no doubt that, had I asked them to invent a means of precluding my going to the stream for water, they would have put together some bamboo pipes or a pulley to help me deal with the slippery bit or built me a hut near the stream. They themselves had no motive to progress, as they felt no need no pressure from any quarter to change their ways. 
that I deemed it an imposition to have to make use of my perfectly adequate coordination or resented from unexamined principle the use of time to fill a need was an arbitrary assignment of values that their culture did not share. Oh, I love that. The first time I read this, I felt a genuine envy for how these women lived. There's no doubt that life can be challenging wherever a person lives, but these people have such a profound sense of belonging, of feeling right in their bodies and on the land that they call home, of exuding a robust delight in life that I can't help but envy them. Maybe you're wondering, yeah, but what about heading out for your morning latte? What about taking a break from the kids from time to time? What about holidays abroad? What about playing your favorite jazz CD or heading out to a musical performance? Yeah, I hear you. Indeed, those are wonderful things, but they come at a high price, and I'm not so sure they would be sought out if we actually had the deep earthbound sense of belonging that Leadloff describes in her observations of the Yoquana. Could it be, I wonder, that most of our modern sources of enjoyment derive from being cut off at the roots. To quote D.H. Lawrence, Oh, what a catastrophe, what a maiming of love when it was made a personal, merely personal feeling, taken away from the rising and setting of the sun and cut off from the magic connection of the solstice and equinox. This is what is the matter with us. We are bleeding at the roots because we are cut off from the earth and sun and stars and love is a grinning mockery because, poor Blossom, we plucked it from its stem on the tree of life and expected it to keep on blooming in our civilized vase on the table. Oof, that hits close to home. Several years ago, I wrote a poem that I recited and uploaded to YouTube, and I will conclude this episode with that poem. It's titled, The Trade. The Trade Much was traded that day, a trading that has never ceased, because comfort sounded so good, the rumor of safety, so good. Increased longevity, so good. The wanting of blankets during those long black nights of sleeping curled up in loose nests built of moss and branches. Life in the garden must have been acute, vivid, surprising. Death was not abstract but closer than breath. A snake or arrow could maim, an illness could strike, swiftly and without prejudice. Life at once supplanted, generously returned to the soil. Naked to the elements, a kind of human berry I was, the earth against my skin, Buffalo fur in winter, straw coverings in summer. There's no doubt life was hard and splendidly visceral, that direct and immediate alliance with the Maker. I was magnificently alive.
I don't romanticize. I don't remember any romance. Maybe a beaded belt was tied around my waist and words of my duties spoken from the mouths of the older white-haired ones grind and stir the maize, gather kindling for the fire, fetch water from the river. It doesn't mean I wasn't happy, nor that I'm happy now. A well-stocked pantry and shopping mall nearby Often a biting loneliness of how things are on this side of the window pane. No romance here either. Very little comes in contact with my hungering skin that is authentically alive. It's all paved or made in China while freedom rushes about frenetically paying off the bills. Tick, tock. Tick, talk. I don't remember saying yes the day the trading happened. Others traded on my behalf. I'm not sure if they ever thought of us or how the waves rippling out from the choices they made would flow directly into our days and how the blankets that came would fail to keep us warm. Thank you for tuning into NBC Life. For future episodes, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or YouTube. For free resources or to book a private session with me, head over to rochellelam.com. Until the next time, stay sane, grateful, and generous.